To love learning. To laugh. To love. To be loved. To see beauty. To understand. To bring grace. To the things that matter most. This is Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra. Welcome to my show. For every life stage, we have questions. Let's enhance our lives together as we explore the things that matter most. I dedicate most of my episodes to a nonprofit group that I care about. And this time, I would like to dedicate this episode to the International Forgiveness Institute, which was founded by Dr. Robert Enright, who has researched and written about uh, forgiveness. And he was actually on the show. And internationalforgivenessinstitute.com gives you all kinds of resources on how to forgive and research behind forgiveness and why it's good for your body. And also, I have created this podcast out of my love and my deep desire to freely share psychology with others. And if you would like to support the production costs of this show, please visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash Dr. Alexandra. So let us begin. In the summer of 2018, I hadn't been dating Neil for very long and I already felt a deep connection with him. And I asked him if he'd like to join me for a trip to San Francisco. I was heading to San Francisco to speak at the American Psychological Association Conference, the APA, And it's just like Neil to say yes to an adventure and to try new things. And that's one of the things I love about him. He said he wanted to go and he wanted to run across the Golden Gate Bridge with me when we were there. And we did. And let me share with you Dr. Patricia Zurita Ona. I could not believe the magnificence of the Golden Gate Bridge. And it remains my favorite part of San Francisco. It must be nice for you to work there. It is, I feel very fortunate to live and work in this area. We have easy access to the beach, to the mountains, to the snow. So it feels like a really special treat in life to live in this area. We are speaking with psychologist, Dr. Patricia Zurita Ona known as Dr. Z, author of six books, including Escaping the Emotional Roller Coaster, Act for the Emotionally Sensitive, and the ACT Workbook for Teens with OCD, Unhook Yourself and Live Life to the Full. Dr. Z has run over 140 workshops at national and international conferences, And she runs a private practice in San Francisco, as I mentioned, where she works with children through adults struggling with anxiety, perfectionism, procrastination, and managing their emotions. Dr. Z, I share your commitment to increasing access to psychology to as many people as possible to make this world a better place. And I want to cheer you on. Thank you so much. That's very kind of you. I feel that We are connected in trying to disseminate skills that can help a person to have and live an incredible life that they deserve. That we all deserve, yes. 
And today we're here to talk about acceptance and commitment therapy for OCD, which is what I like to use for OCD as well. So I'm very excited. And much of your work is related to helping people face their fears and take risks in one part. And I'm wondering if we could begin, I'm wondering if you can share with us what in your own life might have prompted you to have curiosity about facing fears and taking risks. Yeah, um, if I can share a little bit of my personal background to answer your question. Um, It's a very personal question and there is a lot of history for me there. I was originally born in Bolivia, South America. Yes. And I was actually born in the midst of a dictatorship. My country was under a military regiment for eight years. Um, In my childhood and at the beginning of my adolescence, I actually witnessed three military regiments taking over the democracy of the country. And while I didn't witness people being tortured or extreme situations like that, certainly I witnessed very close what means for families, what means for a group of people to live with some form of fear in which there were political exchanges, uh, some people disappear, some people have to hide, some people didn't have the freedom of speech that we want people to have. Mm. So I think in the larger context, those early experiences shaped me in terms of what means dealing with fear-based responses. Mm. And then within my family also, I, I feel extremely grateful for every person in my family. But also I noticed how some of my family members were making decisions based on fear. They didn't try things that they were important to them because they were afraid of upsetting other people. They didn't try sometimes new things because that will mean losing security and stability of the current job they have. Right. So I think, um, and then later on, um, I think when I was maybe 15, 14 years old, I got very interested in philosophy and I was reading the classic book of Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment. Yeah. And I got fascinated by the story of the main character and all the internal struggles that he's going, trying to figure out what to do. Um, so I think for me, my relationship with fear-based struggles started very early, right? Because of the context in which I was born historically and socially. Yeah. Because my own family of origin And because also in my life to write books, to come to this country, to try to do a podcast like yourself, I have to overcome many of these fear-based responses, many of these self-doubts, many of these criticizing thoughts, right? So I had to learn to develop a new relationship with my worries, with my fears, with my anxieties. But as you can see, um, given my history, to me, it's an ongoing process, right? It's an ongoing process that dates back and, you know, since I was a kid. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And you have obviously faced your fears and taken a lot of risks with success. Even your first book, you were probably afraid before you even wrote the book. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm smiling because here's the story of that book. Um, my first book, I it was a book that I co-authored with my mentor. Um, but it's a very interesting story because this is around maybe 2007, 2008. I finished grad school. I was attending an annual conference of the Association of Cognitive and Behavior Therapists. And at the end of one of these long days in which you have attended many workshops, I was having dinner with my mentor. And I remember that we were at this beautiful restaurant in New York, looking at the streets. It was in November, so it was very cold and windy. But it was one of those very sweet moments when you are just chatting with your mentor. Yeah. And in that conversation, we were catching up about the workshops he attended to, the workshops I attended, our learnings, exchanging notes. And then he, he made this comment that he thinks I am ready to write a book. And I still remember the day I look at him and I start crying. I start crying. and You I, immediately started crying. Yeah, yeah. It's really, it's a, it's a very fresh memory. I start crying. And my tears were because I was extremely grateful that someone could see some value in my work. And I was also afraid and I was very, very tearful. And of course, he didn't expect that response. Yeah. <laughs> There are many different types of cries. So he's like, what happened? <laughs> exactly, right. Yeah. Um, so I remember telling him that I was so grateful that I believe in all the things that he has taught me, that I want to do a good work with all the skills I have. But I say that English is a second language for me. I don't think I can. I don't think I have you know, too much to say. And I let it go there. And then one month later, we're back in California. Mm -hmm. I made an appointment. I'm walking to his office. He opens the door of his office and I say, I am ready. Is the offer still on the table? I will write. How many chapters do I need to write? What are the topics? Walk me through this. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think what you have is that it is human experience to be scared, to be afraid and to be anxious. And the challenge is that our fears, they also come with narratives, narratives about what we can do and what we cannot do. And I think it's easy, as I did in those moments, to act on those narratives and maybe say no to things that are actually important to us. But in those four weeks from the time that I got invited to go out of the book to the time when I say yes, I actually had a chance to step back and really ask myself, what is important? What was my value? Why did it hurt so much when he asked me you know, to go out to a book? What were my doubts about? And when I tap and flip the side of my pain, I saw a deep value of mine, which is like your value, Alexandra, sharing skills so people can get access and have incredible lives. So I think when I tap into that value, then I realize also that as long as I hold onto my value and do the best I can writing and conveying ideas, it didn't need to be perfect. I can always ask for coaching, but what the most important was to not live in fear in that particular situation. Because if I had acted on fear, I will be far away from a deep value of mine. 
That's right. And I am not sure if you found this to be your experience, but I find the process to be a pleasure as well, meaning the process of creating a podcast or the process of writing to be a joy in itself. And then the outcome I hope will be, I hope it will be of service to the people around me. And that's a pleasure too. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for mentioning that because I think what I can tell you is that I know for me personally that when we liberate ourselves from our fears and by liberating from our fears, I don't mean be fearless. I mean, really checking which fear do you have to let it go? Which fear do you have to explore? And you follow your values. You follow the things that they speak to your heart. I think you unpack an incredible amount of amazing experiences. For me, like for you, writing, creating the podcast, creating online material has been extremely rewarding, fun, exciting. I discovered a new side of creativity for myself to the point that these days I don't see myself you know, living life without having that peace. The days when I don't write, I just feel that something is missing, right? Um, or even with a podcast, it's a new project for me. And yes, I am learning a lot, but I know in my heart is one of the best decisions I have made. So I think there is a lot to say that once we put our fears next to us and we don't have to fight them or push them away or pretend they are not there, but we take action doing what matters, I think we discover so many things about ourselves, things that we didn't know. That is right. We allow ourselves to step into adventures and new learning. I love what you say. It's really an adventure and new learnings and challenging ourselves and revisiting again. I don't regret at all having started writing. Um, I don't regret at all having started my own podcast. I don't regret at all having started to create more online resources. Amazing things happen, absolutely. So let's dive right into OCD as a topic. I want to refer listeners to a previous podcast episode on this show with Dr. Alan Wegg on obsessive compulsive disorder, which goes over a lot about what OCD is. But could you, and I'm going to call you Dr. Z because I know that's what your professional name is. Could you help listeners today with an overview of what OCD looks like and how it leads to suffering? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, when we think about obsessive compulsive disorder, it's important to clarify that it's not what the media presents in terms of these cute versions of monk or sometimes Hollywood celebrities saying, I am so OCD because they have organized their closet or they have organized their shoes. Right. Or that it's about being tidy and needy. Um, I think when we think about obsessive compulsive disorder, we're thinking of an anxiety struggle that can be extremely debilitating. And it's characterized by obsessions, compulsions, and avoidance. Obsessions are unwanted thoughts, images, feelings that are very sticky. It's like they have a Velcro and it's hard to let them go. 
they also come with a sense of urgency, as if you have to do something right now, right here. Imagine that if by accident you put your fingers inside an electrical outlet, your whole body will be shaking, right? So obsessions for many of my clients, they feel in that way. They are unwanted. They are annoying. They don't like those thoughts, but they pop up really quickly and they feel extremely overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And then when people have one of those intrusive thoughts, they do two things. One, they do what we call a compulsion. They do a behavior that can be private or can be public to neutralize the anxiety, to get rid of that obsession. For example, if I am afraid of harming someone, and that's totally an obsession because I don't have it within me to be an aggressive person or to do horrible things to others. But then I am walking on the street and there is an image popping up about me stabbing someone. That's an obsession, right? It's really, it's disturbing. Mm -hmm. Like I don't want to have that thought. I don't want to have that image. And then that comes with a lot of fear. And I'm afraid, what if there is something within me that wants to harm other people? I know I don't want it, but there. what if there is this unconscious part of me that wants to do so? In response to that overwhelming experience, either I do a compulsion or I do an avoidant behavior. A compulsion may look like I will pray quickly or I will blink my eyes or I will make a fist or I will check with you and I will say, Alexandra, you know I'm a good person, right? You know I won't ever do anything harmful to another person. And you may say yes. Mm -hmm. So that will be another, a form of a compulsion that needs a reassurance from other people. Or because I'm so afraid of harming people and I'm doubting myself, I may decide that I am not going to hang out with anybody. I start avoiding social gatherings. I start avoiding my family because in that way, I am protecting them from any potential harm. So what you have here is that obsessions, again, are very sticky and wanted thoughts. And they can be what we call also egocentric or egodystonic. Egocentric is when they can be confusing because they are related to the things that you care about. Am I a good, being a good parent? Do I love my partner? Am I protecting the environment? Or they can be egodystonic and they can be like very out there, right? Like you're walking on the street and you imagine that you can steal people's knowledge by looking at them. Mm -hmm. So they have a lot of variety, but primarily they are extremely overwhelming and people respond to them either doing a compulsion or doing an avoidant behavior. Yes, there are brain differences with folks with OCD. Exactly. There is something with their corticostriatothalamic loop where the brain is stuck on repeat. It's a hyperactive overfiring. Exactly. Thank you for mentioning that. I like to think the way that I, I tell my clients many times is that it is not their fault to have a hardworking, overworking brain. That it's actually very courageous in life to be walking in their shoes with a brain that is constantly jumping and scanning things, right? Just scanning for threat. But I think 
what I would like to emphasize here is that when we think about obsessions, they can be of the brain could latch into anything and everything as an obsession and as a compulsion. Yeah. There is no limits for the brain, right? The brain could latch into fears of contamination, aggressive obsessions, obsessions about my identity, existential obsessions. Is there life after death? I've definitely seen people switch their obsessions. Right, because the brain could latch into anything, right? So that's why we have different themes. Um, in my book, one of the things that I did in one of the chapters, I describe in detail the 19 most common forms of OCD based on the theme of the obsessions and based on the theme of the compulsions, like the perfectionistic OCD, just right OCD, somatoform, uh, somatosensory OCD. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I did that is because, again, we have received so many messages that OCD is related to being clean, organized, or exclusively about fears of contamination. Right. But that's really far from the truth. Very, very far from the truth. And it is important for people to know this if they have a sticky thought that they cannot let it go, that it's like a Velcro. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily OCD, but that's something to pay attention to, right? If that's affecting your life, it's really hard to let it go. That's something to pay attention to. Well, it demands your attention until you learn, you know, skills, which you are going to talk about today Uh on how to change that loop. So that loop is changeable. And there is hope for people with OCD, which is wonderful, either through psychotherapy or through medication. Yeah, we know that the best combination of treatments for most people have been psychotherapy and pharmacological treatments because we need to help the body to decrease this physiological edginess that has, right? Right. For therapy to work. Um, And in terms of therapy, the most research-based and well-established treatment for OCD, anxiety, phobias, panics, is cognitive behavior therapy, in particular exposure response prevention. Mm-hmm. Yes. So if I can add a little bit more um, for your audience, because I don't know how familiar people are with exposure, there are so many misconceptions also about cognitive behavior therapy or exposure For the purpose of our chat, maybe I just can add that when we think about exposure, we're thinking of gradual approximation to whatever thing you are scared of. So, for example, if I am afraid of taking the elevator in the exposure treatment, I will one day I may walk by the elevator. Another day I may stand up, I don't know, five feet far from the elevator. Another day may touch the bottoms of the elevator. Another day I may bring one of my feet inside the elevator and then going out. All those feelings of fear will be there. Yes. And yet you'll still do it and you'll stay. That's the idea that you progressively approach a situation, an activity or an image that you're scared of and you allow yourself to experience all the anxiety that comes up without running away from it. Because the more that you get better at tolerating that yucky feeling, the more skillful you're going to be to get unstuck from your fear. That's right. 
Yeah. It's a beautiful and paradoxical thing. And it is what works. I love that. It's a paradoxical treatment on the sense that we have to approach what we're scared of and do what it feels counterintuitive. Because the most common response when we're feeling anxious, worried, or scared is to run away, to avoid, to get out of that situation as soon and as fast as possible. So it is counterintuitive to stay there and notice how it feels and check how your body feels. And yet we know that when we take those micro steps, we are coaching our brain. We are coaching our brain that you can handle it, that you can learn the skill to face these fears and that you don't have to be dominated by those struggles. You are not going to die. That's right. No one has died in the history of exposure therapy. I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't know if you do it like I do, but I usually begin with acceptance and commitment therapy and take people through all of those components before I do more of the exposure and response prevention. Yeah, yeah. I think, as you know, if I can share maybe a little bit of a personal background here, I was originally trained in hardcore cognitive behavior therapy. And when I mean hardcore cognitive behavior therapy, I absolutely mean it. In my undergrad training and my master's degree training in Bolivia and South America, I was fortunate to attend a program that was very focused in cognitive psychology. So we got a lot of the training on CBT and doing habituation models, behavioral activation, thoughts logs, thoughts records, challenging cognitive distortions. In the middle of graduate school, I discovered acceptance and commitment therapy. And at the beginning, it was a really hard process for me to be immersed in what we call third wave therapies. ACT is also a third wave therapy. Third wave, yeah. Uh huh. Because I really had to relearn what I knew. Because up to that point, I was doing a lot of challenging cognitions and challenging the content of thinking and teaching clients a lot of copying responses or doing exposure with a purpose of reducing anxiety. But then when I discovered acceptance and commitment therapy, I traveled for one year to different places to get a training. It was after that time when I really did my best to experience ACT versus versus learning in my head about ACT or learning with these narratives or challenging things that things start shifting professionally and also personally. I want to share with listeners that ACT is how people refer to acceptance and commitment therapy for anyone that doesn't know. Yeah, so go on. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, and if you look at the different books that I have published, each one of them is an application of acceptance and commitment therapy act into a particular struggle because it was important for me to really expand and disseminate life skills in the way that I think of act as life skills that can really help people to live the lives they want to live. I think many times one size of treatment doesn't fit all. And I think it's important to have options that can be very research-based and can also be very empowering for people. So that was my journey with ACT. So I also think ACT is brilliant. I love it. 
I can tell you that on a personal level, ACT has changed my life completely, completely. And in a professional level, in the clinical work I do, absolutely. I breathe and I live the skills and I have experienced in them firsthand the shift that they have made in my life, in particular dealing with my own fears, dealing with my own self-criticizing stories that I was sharing at the beginning. So when we think of OCD, um, as we know, the frontline treatment is exposure response prevention. And exposure, again, is approaching a situation, an activity, or an image gradually. The challenge that we have with exposure response prevention based on the habituation model and also the inhibitory learning model that was recently developed by Michelle Krask is that one size treatment of exposure doesn't fit every single person. Um, when people hear about exposure treatment for panic, for phobias, they tend to be overwhelmed. It's a really scary thing to face our fears. Of course it is. Right? If you're having, let's say that you recently became a mom and you just delivered a baby and you have been waiting all your life to hold this baby on your hands and you know that this is the life you want to have, that you were hoping to become mom at some point, and then there is an image about you drowning your baby. So that's an obsession, right? It's an unwanted, it's inconsistent with how you want to be, the life you want to have. So imagine how it is for a person to tell them, okay, to help you to deal with that fear, you have to imagine you are drowning your baby or you have to imagine, you know, your baby. That's really hard. That's really overwhelming, right? So what happens is that when people hear about exposure in research settings, an average of 25% of people, they don't start treatment. They don't go to see a therapist. And then from the people that they start treatment, let's say that then you have a group of 75 people. From the people that they start treatment, an average of 30 to 33%, they discontinue treatment. And then from the ones that complete treatment, I think it's over 22% that they experience a relapse one or two years later. So what we have here is that with exposure as a well-established treatment, we help a lot of people, but we have a large group of people that is not responding to treatment. They are either too scared, they get scared in the middle of treatment. Or they don't even begin. Or they don't even begin, right? So to me, those are the clients that sometimes they were in my practice, clients that they try all types of exposure, clients that they were really scared when considering about exposure. So the biggest goal, if I can say for me, was how can we make ACT skills, acceptance and commitment therapy skills, more accessible to people so they can get the benefits of it. And just to clarify also, acceptance and commitment therapy by nature is an exposure-based treatment because for the audience, when we think about acceptance and commitment therapy skills, we are talking about helping people to figure out their personal values, the things that matter to them. That is step one. That, yeah, the things that they care about. And then we also invite them to accept, make room, lean, make a space for all the yucky stuff that comes when doing what you care about. So it's making a space for all those unwanted thoughts, 
fears, worries, anxieties. And there is this component that we call committed action, which is about taking the steps, taking concrete steps, establishing goals, towards living those values. In spite of all of the thoughts. Exactly. That's the biggest thing, right? So as you can see, Alexandra, and for anyone listening, ACT by nature is already an exposure treatment because you cannot accept something without exposing yourself to it. Let's get down to the nitty gritty of how it works so that people can understand. It begins with defining what are your deepest values? What nourishes you? And I read your book on ACT for teens with OCD. Mm-hmm. And you had a wonderful exercise in which you ask them to picture themselves celebrating their birthday at different times of their life, at 21, at 40, at 50, at 80. And imagine that at each birthday, you have a family member or a friend saying something about who you are and who do they want to be? Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite exercises. And um, so for the audience, when you think about your values, and we can talk about definitely the nitty gritty, you can think about if you're dealing with OCD, you can think about what's behind that hurt. If you think about all those moments of stuckness because of obsessions and compulsions and avoidance, what's behind that hurt? Sometimes we talk about flipping the side of that coin, right? Imagine that you have a coin and in one side of the coin, there is the OCD struggle. What's on the other side? What hurts for you on the other side? Is that affecting how you want to be as a partner in your relationship? Is it affecting that relationship with yourself? Is it affecting your career? So that's one way into checking what really matters to you. Mm-hmm. Another way could be thinking of moments in your life. And I do this with my clients a lot. We do an inventory of the times in which they feel fully engaged. They feel engaged. They felt alive. If you think about our life, even at different times when we were children, when we were teens, as young adults, there are moments in which we know this is the thing for us. We're fully engaged with what activity that we're doing. So those are other questions to tap into the values. When I think of OCD, if a new client comes into my office, we do a comprehensive assessment of OCD for the intake session. We do ask about the different types of obsessions. We use the yellow, brown, and obsessive compulsive scale. We also assess different forms of compulsions, in particular mental compulsions, because they can vary, like figuring out, rumination, worrying, checking the meaning of what I'm thinking or checking the meaning of what I'm feeling are forms of compulsions. So we assess that. But then if a person decides to start treatment after this intake and receive an information of the OCD, we start talking about the values. We start talking about how these OCD struggles are affecting their life in different areas, in their romantic relationships, parenting, friendships, academic or career, spiritual life, health. 
we do different types of exercises, like the one you share, Alexandra, and the ones that I shared, right? Right. And the idea is that we want to help people to find first in which ways OCD is keeping them stuck in life, in which way OCD behaviors are keeping them far away from where they want to go in life. And so that's like a conversation of possibilities, right? It's not a conversation of limitations. It's about saying people, imagine for a moment that you learn to manage all these OCD struggles that come your way. And you don't have to be spending five or 10 hours doing a compulsion. And you can go out with your friends and you can watch your favorite movies. All the time. How will that look like? What else will you do in your life, right? Mm -hmm. All the time that they could save. This goes for people with generalized anxiety disorder as well. All the time that could be saved that is otherwise spent dancing with the anxious and repetitive thoughts. Yeah. When we ask people that question or those types of questions along the lines, I think there is a world of possibilities that we start talking, another world of limitations. So I think it's a very powerful moment in therapy. When we are assessing for values, we're also paying attention that people don't confuse values with feelings. For example, a common response I will hear from my clients is that, well, I want to be less anxious or I want to be happy. The challenge is that we do some exercises, right? Like, for example, right now, Alexandra, I can tell you to do your best. Please do your best to feel angry. Just do the best you can to feel angry. What happens when I say those words? I feel some pressure about, oh, what am I going to think of? And do I really want to think of that? Then I did think of that. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I love it. I love it. Did you feel angry? Did you experience anger in your body? There wasn't enough time and I shut it down, but I could definitely go there. Okay. So something that is important here is that We can think of things that will make us feel mad many times, right? Yes. But that's a decision we make. But when we tell ourselves, I want to be happy, or I want to stop having anxiety, we don't have control of what our body feels. Feelings are things that come and go, like waves in the ocean, they come and go. We have control of how to respond to those feelings. And certainly, Alexandra, what you're mentioning is sometimes we can try to prompt an emotional state, right? By thinking of things. Why this is important? Because the things that matter to us, while they can feel good and revitalizing, they are not necessarily dictated by our feelings. Think about that there are many times in our lives that we do the things that are important for us and they feel both. They feel yucky and they feel fun. Mm-hmm. Our feelings, again, they come and go, are things that happen to us, uh, but they are not values. Values are also not what people tell us that we should do or what our families think that we should do. It's a great thing when there is a congruence there, right? It's easier. It's easier, right? But what is important is to think that values are individual choices we make in our life. And we don't have to force ourselves to relate to something that 
It just doesn't speak to us. So values are not feelings. Values are freely chosen by each person. And values are also not goals. Especially these days, a lot of people talk about how, you know, their values is to write a book or to do a podcast. Those are not values. Those are goals because you can check them off. Those are activities that they can help you to live your value. But the question is, what's so important about writing a book? What's so important about creating a podcast? The value lies behind those activities. For example, if I want to be a caring mother, a goal will be to get pregnant. A goal will be to find a partner. A goal will be to research other options to become a mother, right? Mm -hmm. So goals or activities or micro goals, however you call them, are steps towards living a value, but they are not values. The value is a broader compass. The goals will fall under the umbrella, but the value is a compass that's much broader. Exactly. So values are more like these life principles about how I want to be remembered in this world. How do I want to relate to myself? If people give a speech about me, what I would like them to say that matter to me? The answers to those questions are the values. And they are actionable. Yes. So my deep mission is to love. Mm -hmm. Underneath that are more specific things, to love my family, to love as a psychologist. Yes, that's what is also, I think, important that the way that we think of values within ACT is as ongoing actions, as verbs. So it will be be loving, be caring, being present, being real, right? And the way I will do this is by taking these specific actions. So in therapy, we start there with looking at the values. And then we identify the core fear of the obsessions. There can be many fears, fears of touching the doorknob, fears of sitting on the hardwood floor, fears of using a pain in a waiting room of a doctor that I don't know who touched that pain. So behind that, we ask what's the core fear Mm -hmm. and why this is important because fears travel all the time, right? We do have a collection of fears. They can easily generalize. So it's important to tap into the core fear that maintains these OCD episodes We identify certainly the compulsions and the avoidance. And then we talk about the consequences of acting on those compulsions and avoidance. And with my clients, with my adult clients in particular, we check how they are living their lives. Are they taking their obsessions as the absolute truth or are they taking them lightly? Are they spending their time doing the things they want to be doing or are they narrowing their lives because of the obsessions? Good way to say it, Uh narrowing their lives because it can become a job to manage your obsessions or your worries. Yes. It does become a job. Or a hobby. I refer to it as a hobby. Yeah. Yeah. I think people spend a lot of time managing those obsessions, those compulsions. So we talk about, again, how they are, whether they are taking action towards the things they care about or whether they are organizing their life around obsessions. We talk about whether they are having obsessions as thoughts that their mind is coming up with, or they are seeing obsessions as problems that have to be solved. So at the beginning, that's the work to look at what matters, 
to look at how OCD is affecting that life of doing what matters and to look at how they are living their life, right? It's a conversation of possibilities. And then we talk about how we can make this treatment about getting closer and closer to live those values. Think about, again, a person that just delivered a baby. If my value is to be a caring mother, a present mother, but then because of my obsessions of what if I harm my baby, I am not giving a bath to my baby. I'm always asking my partner to hold the baby. I always want to be with someone next to me if I'm holding the baby, right? Right. So the exposures, I call them values-based exposures. And we develop not a hierarchy, we develop a values-based exposure menu. And as part of the development of the values-based exposure menu, we write down a specific activities that a person could do to lift that value. So, for example, going along with this example of a woman that has fears of obsessions about harming her baby, and values-guided exposure could be holding the baby for two minutes so I can practice being caring with my child. So every exposure exercise is always in the service of a person's values. Mm. It's not what a therapy says. It's not what a workbook says. It's really in which way if I face that scary thing, if I face that situation, that object, that's going to help me to be the person I want to be. I have a question. Yeah. I'm wondering if before you create the values-based exposure hierarchy, mm-hmm. if you talk to the patient about greeting the OCD or acknowledging the OCD. That's a great question. Um, how we do it in my practice, and again, people may do this in very different ways, right? Um, when we're doing our comprehensive intake, we do a lot of psychoeducation there about what's OCD, what are obsessions, what's compulsions. So people are familiar, somehow familiar, some people more than others. Now, during the treatment, right after we talk about values and we develop this values-based exposure menu, right, and we talk about willingness, that the work we're going to be doing is not about pushing people into that burning out zone. It's about helping people to choose how to handle that moment of a struggle with an obsession. And we're going to do the best we can to face all those obsessions as they come in their life, as they show up for them every single day. And then in that process, when we're doing, when we're practicing this values-based exposure, we are going to teach people skills, acceptance and diffusion in particular to sit with that noise. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. For example, let's see if I can clarify this with an example. Again, the person who just became a mother and is afraid of holding the baby because of aggressive obsessions. During the exposure, let's say about the balance guided exposure is holding the baby for two minutes, right? My coaching, if I'm next to her coaching her, and we do these exposures all the time with clients, right? We just do them with them. We coach them how they can handle it. Right. If this person is holding the baby in their arms, I may ask questions. How does it feel in your body right now? What is your mind telling you? What are you noticing in your body? What are the urges here? In my work, and this is something that I was 
very passionate when I was thinking about how to make ACT accessible to people. I like to talk about nine micro steps for people to face their obsessions. And these are a little bit the prompts that we ask people to consider when doing an exposure. Like we invite them to check whether they are watching their mind, right? As you're watching sometimes your pets, as you're watching leaves falling off a tree, as you're watching taxi cabs, right? Right. We know when we're watching our mind versus when we are consumed. Or a parade. Or a parade, yes. This is the meta part of sort of stepping outside of your thoughts. Yes, it's super important. For me, I have found that exposure is not the goal. Exposure is the mean towards a values-based living. But it is important that we also teach our clients how to develop a new relationship with their mind and not a relationship that is dictated by the mind, right? Yes. So when they are doing a values-guided exposure and we're watching the mind and how do we know when people are not watching their mind? When we start judging, why am I having this thought? I hate that thought. I hate this. That's not watching the mind. That's judging the mind, right? Yeah. So I ask my clients, okay, what's the mind doing? Are we watching the mind? And then the acronym is basically wise moves, right? But the wise moves are micro skills. So the W stands for watching the mind. Then the I stands for what you were saying, Alexandra, are we inviting the obsessions? Inviting the obsessions doesn't mean liking them or loving them. It means simply saying that we are making room for them. We are acknowledging they are there. How you can invite your obsessions, you could say things like, here is my fear of harming my baby. Mm -hmm. Here is this Mr. Horribilist coming my way, right? So you can even give a name to that particular fear. So what is important is to make room for them. Yes, I like to have patients give the obsessions a shape and a color. Mm -hmm. And I like to have them greet the obsessions with kindness. Beautiful. The obsessions mean to help them. We talk about how do they mean to help? Yes. If you were to think of it that way. And at first, it's really hard for them to think of them as being helpful, but what is it at the core, which goes back to what you were saying about what are the deep values behind it, that, okay, they mean to protect me, let's say. And you can thank them even. Thank you for trying to protect me, but <laughs> I'll let you exactly. go on. I'll, I'll let yeah, you go yeah, on yeah. with your wise, what is your acronym? Um, it's wise moves. Wise moves. Okay. Yeah. What you were mentioning are diffusion skills, right? And diffusion within acceptance and commitment therapy is about watching the thoughts for what they are, not what our mind tells us they are. And we do have different exercises, right? Yes. So I think every single exposure session has an acceptance and diffusion skill they are learning. So think about that it's more like a process, right? We don't teach all the skills at once, right? They actually are, every exposure they are doing, they are facing each one of them. Then after that, we invite people to accept and make room for those obsessions. Then we have the S, which stands stay with your experience. Why this is important again, because exposure is about staying present with the discomfort that comes our way, right? Yes. And staying with our experience may look like, I know this that my heart is beating fast. I know this that, you know, there is this tension in my head. 
I know this that my hands are getting sweaty. I know this that I feel like running away right now. So we invite people that. And then we invite people to make a choice, either toward or away from their values. Why this is important? Because as you have, you may have seen Alexandra many times, many times, people automatically keep doing what the obsession tells them to do. Or answering the questions, right? That's right. Answering the questions, avoiding washing their hands or things like that, or washing compulsively, right? So I think what is important here is that people need to remember they have the power to choose how to respond to that internal experience. And I want to highlight what you're saying right now. You are referring to the choice point, which you've written about a lot in your books. So here you are, you notice your obsessions, you notice all that's happening in your body, and here you are at the choice point. Yes, yes. Um, with the teens, I use the choice point in particular. With the adults, I like to use the wise moves, but it taps into this capacity to choose that we all have, every single human being has, right? And in the case of OCD, we're facing that every single moment an ob- obsession comes up. Um, so the E stands for that, making an E a choice, and then inviting people to make a choice. Is that the M? It's the M, yes. In the moves, make a choice. And why this is important? Because as we may have seen, OCD is a matter of doubt, right? I'm doubting, am I this? Could I? Did I? Will I? Right? Yes. And then in those moments, many times people freeze and they don't know what to do. Our task is to help them to step back, watch what your mind is doing, make room for those obsessions, Stay with your experience, see how it feels for you in that moment. Remember that you can choose and make a choice. Now, when people are making the choice, it doesn't mean people are going to make always the most effective and perfect choice. What is more important, I am more invested in my clients choosing versus responding automatically, right? Yes, but you're encouraging your clients to choose an actionable response that's aligned with their deepest values. So they can choose to keep answering all the questions or doing the compulsions for OCD, or they can say, OCD, you can hang with me because you're not going to go away, but I'm still going to now do this, right? I'm going to start writing or doing my homework or loving my husband. Exactly. We invite people to choose an action that is consistent with their values. However, I do want to say that at the beginning of treatment in particular, it's a hard choice to make. I know for my clients, right, sometimes they tell me, but I just did a mental compulsion or I just did that. At the beginning, I think what is more important is that you are catching yourself making these choices. With time, it will make better and better that you will choose a values-based move versus doing a compulsion or an avoidance behavior. The reason why I clarify this is because sometimes my clients have come discouraged when they say, oh, Dr. Z, I couldn't hold it. I just asked for reassurance or I just wash my hands for one hour. I am a bad client. Clearly, I'm not going to get better. So I want to normalize that it is hard to make a shift from behaviors that have been reinforced hundreds of times to new behaviors. 
And in that process, you are learning how to make a shift and it's not going to be perfect or smooth. And then that's why I have in that moves that all comes, observa comes with a choice. What happens when you choose living your values? What happens when you ended up doing a compulsion and avoidance? And then the V comes as valuing your choice. Really, what's that gentle thing that you can appreciate the hard work you just did in this moment? Which is the self-compassion piece that you were saying at the beginning, Alexandra, right? I think there is a lot of criticizing thoughts that I have seen my clients struggling with. And for some of them, their identity is dictated by OCD. I am a monster. I am a mess. I am unlovable, right? Yeah. What is important is to, again, recognize that it's not their fault to be walking in life with a brain that is overworking, that is working ultra hard to protect them. And that in those moments of exposures, they are doing the best they can. And it's important to value and appreciate that. I like your compassion and you are acknowledging that in the process there, it's not going to be perfect and they're training their mind, right? Exactly. So you're asking them to be gentle on themselves in the process. Exactly, which is super important, right? Um, Otherwise, they're going to go hours and hours of criticizing themselves because they made the wrong choice. And then finally, if I continue with the moves, right? The E and the S, the E stands for engage with what's next in your life. And the S, soften up with self-compassion. Why is this important? Because I have noticed that sometimes my clients, after doing an exposure, whether that's a planned exposure in our work or it's an incidental exposure that happened to them in their lives, right? Sometimes they spend hours and hours ruminating about the exposure. Why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. And they forget that life is happening in front of them. So with a wise moves, again, they are micro skills that we prompt people through the exposure. So if a person is touching a doorknob they have been scared of, or they're holding a baby they're afraid of harming, we ask questions, what's your mind doing? Are you watching the mind? What's showing up in your body? And then they may say, well, I have a strong urge right now to actually give you the baby, right? Or put the baby down, right? Or call my husband and check with him that I'm a good mother. So that's when we teach the skills. And I say things like, how would it look like in your life if you do those behaviors? What happens when you go into avoidance and compulsion? And people tell me that they will be stuck, that they don't want to live like that forever. And I say, let me just teach you new skills. And that's how I teach sometimes diffusion by naming the obsessions, visualizing the obsessions, physicalizing the obsessions, making a gesture, right? Singing the obsessions. The whole thing is, and that speaks to what's happening in the brain. You want to break the very rigid loop in the brain. And by doing something like singing or slowing it down, you are changing the loop the rigid loop. Yeah. So for example, one of the biggest fears I had in my life and I continue to have in my life is to die young. I am really scared of dying young. So if I sing my fear to the tune of Merry Christmas, for example, the tune goes something along the lines like, I wish you a Merry Christmas. I wish you a Merry Christmas. So if I sing my fears to the tune of Merry Christmas will be I may go die young. I may die young. 
why I made the young. And the purpose is, you know, it made me laugh and hopefully it makes you laugh because then it sounds ridiculous and you have broken that rigid loop. <laughs> exactly. I want to say with a lot of gentleness that I know that when we're doing exposures and I'm teaching my clients these skills and coaching them, of course, some of them, they feel awkward. Absolutely. It's weird. However, when I invite people in my work, and I wrote a lot about that in the book, is it's more important to be willing to face this in the service of what matters to me. And when I am open to try without judging the exercise, then I will check what works for me and what doesn't. Some people, you know, are extremely creative with visual images and they imagine their obsessions in so very unique ways. Other people like, like to do more physicalizing their obsessions. They make gestures as if they have touched the obsession and they put the obsession in their packet. Yeah, you had an idea of putting obsessions on a sticky note. Can you explain what that one was? Yeah, that's a classic act exercise in which we're basically writing down our obsessions. And you can do this with any sticky thought. That's a worry. Can be also done with a narrative about us not being good enough. You write it down and you can put it on your pocket or you can maybe wear it in your sweater, right? It's a classic exercise. The ones that I try to do, I think in my work, I teach clients really a variety of diffusion exercises that involve visualizing them. You can see sometimes obsessions in action. Like you can imagine, for example, soccer players running with t-shirts that have the obsessions printed <laughs> on them, right? Um, or you can imagine your um, the cover of your book with the title of the obsessions, right? Will I die young? Am I going to kill this person? Will I contract cancer? So those will be like the visual, visualizing obsessions. You can also physicalize obsessions, I was saying, or you can sometimes sing them or say them aloud or create poetry or write a song about them, right? But the idea here is as the exposure in every single values-based exposure exercise we do in session, we teach a bunch of skills and people have different experiences with them. And in that process, in act terms, they are developing this new relationship with their obsessions, this new relationship with their values. And they start experiencing what it feels to be doing what is important to them, how it feels to be approaching versus avoiding, and also what it feels to develop a gentle relationship with all the hard work I am doing with facing my fears. So I think in that sense, it's a very kind, compassionate, and it's still very behavior-based approach. And I want to point out, because this is very important, that when we do this work, we are not to tell our obsessions to go away. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. It would make them even bigger. Exactly. Well, that's the whole thing, right? I think I mentioned this at the beginning, right? I am a big proponent that to maximize the benefits of exposure, it is important to coach clients a new relationship with their mind. And when I think about a new relationship of your, with your mind, I am thinking along the lines of learning to date your mind in a more sophisticated and more caring way. Because when dealing with anxieties and with OCDs, many times the mind has become a dictator, 
and we try to fight it and push back, right? But usually in my work, I teach clients, especially with OCD, micro tips, right? To acknowledge that the mind is more like a content generating machine that is coming out with all types of content all the time, 24 hours, seven days a week without taking a vacation. And that it's really impossible that every single thought that the mind comes up with is the absolute truth. So I invite people to really practice a new nurturing and caring relationship with their mind by staying present, by distinguishing when it's helpful to be stuck in your mind and when you have to get out, to practice some attention flexibility, choosing where am I going to pay attention, what am I going to pay attention to, and all that in preparation to doing this courageous work of facing our obsessions. Patricia, I am so grateful for your kindness in sharing about OCD and ACT for OCD. I wonder what parting thoughts you'd like to leave and uh, also how people can find you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much again for making the time to chat with me. And I hope this was helpful to your audience. I think in terms of my last words will be for any person that are listening and are feeling stuck with worries, anxieties, fears, panic sensation, perfectionistic behaviors, procrastination, and any form of fear-based struggles, please know that there are skills that you can learn and you don't have to be stuck forever. There are things that you can do and I will highly encourage you to search for acceptance and commitment therapy or cognitive behavior therapy because you will get the benefits of of research-based skills. Yes, and I really appreciate that you also love research like I do. Yes, well, science matters, right? Yes, I'm very grateful to all our colleagues who are hardworking and I hope to be able to disseminate. Oh, and there's my dog. (laughs) Hashtag working from home. That's how it is. (laughs) How can people find you? People can go to my website is www.thisisdrz.com. And doctor is spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R, not D-R. Yes, perfect. It's, yeah, it's a spell out, drz.com. And if people are interested in the book, the name of the book for adults is Living Beyond OCD, Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. It's a workbook with a lot of exercises and a plan to tackle OCD. And that's being sold in Amazon right now. Yes, I love your book for teens too. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it was one of my favorite projects, that teenager's book, yeah. Well, thank you again. It was a pleasure to have you. Okay. Thank you so much, Alexandra. Super grateful and have a lovely day. What a pleasure to talk to you. Take care. The same. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra, show your support by leaving an awesome rating on iTunes. If you'd like to share your comments or ideas about this podcast, follow us on Facebook under Psychology America. Lastly, Dr. Alexandra has written an inspiring children's book entitled There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, which is beautifully illustrated by Brianna Giasulo. There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, teaches children about finding joy and gratitude, even when things don't go exactly as planned, and can be found at psychologyamerica.com or amazon.com.